Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Talmud, just in case there are people here who don't have basic knowledge about the Talmud, it is a compendium of Jewish law, of Jewish practice, of Jewish values. It was uh, composed over a period of time, and the editing of the Talmud, we, everybody disagrees about this, but I will take a stab at it and say it was completed, after many, many years of evolving, it was completed approximately 750 common era. The bulk of it is probably... Um, back in the 300s and the 400s, but the final uh, closure, perhaps, you could say, of the Talmud is around uh, the 8th century. All right, so um, how can we get women's social history out of a text that's not a historical text? The Talmud is about, as I mentioned, Jewish law and and Jewish practice. Well, um, it's not easy, (laughs) All right. Most people who study the Talmud, and when I say most people, I guess I'm talking about more men than women, or over hundreds of years of Jewish history, it's certainly true that men studied Talmud and women did not study Talmud in places called yeshivot, yeshivas. So what, what we know about the Talmud is that it'll tell you how to observe the Sabbath, uh, what foods to eat, what foods not to eat, and, and so on. So what am I talking about, women's social history? Well, what I have discovered over the many, many years that I have been studying and teaching Talmud is that, true, there's a lot of law in the Talmud, and there's a lot of non-legal texts in the Talmud, um, stories about rabbis, stories, kind of fabricated stories about biblical characters, ethical teachings, ethical musings, philosophical musings. All, All of that is true. But there's yet another strand of material in the Talmud, and I will say that the strand I'm about to tell you, describe to you, probably comprises no more than 5% of the Talmud. And what I am labeling that strand as, it is composed of halachic anecdotes. Halachic means legal, and anecdotes means anecdotes. Now, like, Maybe I'm not impressing you with that, but let me try uh, as hard as I can to impress you with what I just said, because after I talk a little bit more, we're going to be studying these texts. What is a halachic anecdote? Okay, it is not, okay, the Talmud, as I mentioned, has halacha, Jewish law, and agadah, um, Jewish values, Jewish ethics, and so on. Halachic anecdotes are not prescriptive Jewish law. The bulk of the Talmud is prescriptive Jewish law. It tells you how to do what you're supposed to do. Uh, halachic anecdote, I have the word halachic in there, but it's an anecdote. Okay, let me, let me stop in the middle of a sentence and say it a little bit differently. 
a law is stated, is a prescriptive statement of the Talmud, this is how you should um, make Kiddush Friday night, recite Kiddush Friday night. Fine, that's halakha. And then, after discussing that particular law, I'm making what I'm telling you right now, I'm making up, but generally speaking, there's a statement of a law, discussion of that law, and then, if you're lucky, or if I'm lucky, at the end of that discussion of the law, there'll be like a two-line anecdote which will say something along the lines of, Rabbi so-and-so came home on Friday night and he saw that the food wasn't ready. I'm making all this up. And he said to his wife, can I begin Kiddush? And she said yes, or something like that. Okay, that's a halachic anecdote. And then he recited Kiddush. It is about the halacha that was just stated, but it's not a prescriptive rule. It's a descriptive anecdote about how a particular rabbi and a particular rabbi's wife, which we do find in the anecdotes, um, carried out a law. So why, have the, why are these little anecdotes, and they're strung throughout the Talmud. I can't say to you, oh, open up page 32b of Tractate Shabbat, and you'll find a whole slew of them there. You won't. You won't. What you have to do, and there's no way of finding these anecdotes by going to a database, because if you're going to go to a database, you have to have a search term, and there's no search term for anecdotes. You can't just put in man, woman, Shabbat, much, much material, okay? So basically, what you have to do is turn the pages of the Talmud, which is what I do, and then mark off every couple of pages, not, not so often, but every couple of pages of Talmud, you'll find a two-line anecdote. So what I do is I mark them, I collect them, and then when I have enough of them, so to speak, laid out in front of me, then I say, oh, there's something I can learn from all of this. Now, tonight's topic is women's voices in the Talmud. Right now, I'm studying in my own research, not just women's voices in the Talmud, but what can we learn from these anecdotes about how Jews lived their lives back then? And when I say how Jews lived their lives back then, I have to be very careful and say the following. It's not how Jews lived their lives, but how rabbinic Jews lived their lives. Rabbinic Jews meaning rabbis, rabbis' wives, rabbis' families, or any Jew back then who attached himself to the movement called rabbinic Judaism. Today, um, I'm trying to say this in a very um, sensitive way. Today, whether you observe Shabbat the way the Talmud wants you to observe Shabbat or whether you don't, whether you fast on Yom Kippur or whether you eat on Yom Kippur, we are rabbinic Jews. You can be rabbinic Jew, an observant rabbinic Jew today. You can be a non-observant rabbinic Jew today. I, I, I actually, I'm going to have to correct myself in a moment. But essentially, the Judaism that's out in the world today is rabbinic Judaism. Now, I just met somebody here tonight who was telling me about renewal Judaism. So I'm going to say even renewal Judaism, which may be big, more big in the West Coast than it is on the East Coast, that is still a reaction to or a variation of rabbinic Judaism. So, um, so kind of the Talmud, the Talmud is there. I say whether you choose to abide by it or whether you choose to reject it, it's kind of, the, it's like the Bible. The Bible is not just the Jewish book of um, uh, history and laws and so on. The Bible is a common uh, comment to many, many different religions. Whether you follow the Bible or whether you don't follow the Bible, the Bible is there. The Bible has a huge influence on um, Western civilization. 
but you don't have to accept it. Uh, let's say the rules of the Bible and so on. Okay, coming back to the Talmud and women in the Talmud, what I have done is collect many, many anecdotes, and from those anecdotes, I have extracted a subset of anecdotes in which a woman appears. And those are the kinds of anecdotes we're going to look at tonight. Now, let me just say a few more things before we get to our texts. And that is, um, I have to say it like this. Judaism in the Talmud, <laughs> I could even say Judaism today, but Judaism today is so different from Judaism back then. <laughs> For instance, that I can be a rabbi is very different from back then when women could not be rabbis. So let me just limit myself to Judaism back then was configured in a patriarchal manner. Now, let me explain that. Um, what I mean by a patriarchal configuration is that um, men were the rabbis. Men developed Jewish laws. Men studied Torah and um, derived from the Torah all kinds of Jewish laws. Men uh, formed the minion and the synagogue. Men led the services. Oh, and when we come to marriage and divorce, I think this is all very well known because it was with us for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Men took women to be their wives. Women did not, Jewish law, take men to be their husbands. Jewish men could write a bill of divorce and dismiss a Jewish wife. Jewish wives, to this very day, in Orthodox movements, Jewish women could not, if they wanted to get out of that marriage, Jewish women cannot divorce their husbands. They have to get their husbands to agree to divorce them. Only a Jewish man can write a bill of divorce for a Jewish wife, according to the Talmud. I'm not talking about uh, any more about today. So yes, so Judaism, um, that's what Judaism looked like back then. You could um, jump to the conclusion that, oh, well, that's it. Women, were women were, had no value in the eyes of men. Women do not appear in any of these discussions. OK, that's wrong, and that's what I'm coming to tell you here tonight. I'm, I'm going to say two things, and then we will go to our text. Number one, Jewish ritual in the home is, very, is a big part of Judaism. <clears throat> Sabbath meals, Friday night meals. Um, it is customary in a Jewish home to light candles on a Friday night. It is customary in a Jewish home to recite blessings over a cup of wine. It is customary Friday night. It is customary in a Jewish home to have a lavish meal Friday night. All right? Is he in the kitchen cooking that meal? Or let me give you, no. It is men did not go into the kitchen in the ancient world. Men may have turned the meat on the barbecue spit, as men often still do. And in the ancient world, men did that kind of work as well. But the cooking, the peeling of the vegetables and the chopping of the vegetables and the baking of the bread and so on, if we're talking about the home, not the professional bakeries, if we're talking about Jewish homes, the kitchen was the place where women held sway. So now you have to say to yourself, now this is, I'm imagining you're saying to yourself, this is very interesting. The women have control of the kitchen in the ancient world. Well, and what are the men doing? The men are sitting around tables like this and making up all kinds of rules. So let's say Passover. Passover is actually less than two months away. And we're going to eat matzah on Passover. There are a lot of rules about how to bake that matzah. If you take too long about it, your matzah is not kosher for Passover. It becomes chametz. So the men are churning out these rules day after day, week after week, about matzah. But, but who's baking the matzah? The women, all right? So now, here's my argument, and I'm not going to 
prove it here tonight. This is just an example for you. So the men are making the rules. And um, one of the rules we know that's still true today is from the beginning to end, 18 minutes okay, on the matzah, from the time you add the water to the flour till the time it basically bakes, no more than 18 minutes. Well, if that rule stayed in this room, assuming there were just men in this room coming up with that rule, if that rule stayed in this room and the women went their merry way and baked the matzah according to however women thought matzah ought to be baked, then the matzah they're serving their husbands would not be fit for the husbands to eat. It would not be kosher for Passover. So you see, there had to be a way for the men who were deriving, who were um, developing the rules in the house of study, there had to be a way for those rules to get communicated to the women because, and, and so the women had to be, the men had to trust the women, the husbands had to trust the wives to follow the rules. Okay, so first they have to inform the women, so to speak, each week of the latest rule that's emerging from the halacha discussions of the men. And then they have to say, honey, I believe that when you are baking that matzah, you're following every last detail that I am asking you to follow. That's the argument that I'm making. It's a very theoretical argument that is, it's inconceivable, inconceivable that women in the ancient Jewish world did not know Jewish law. You see, that's what people like to say out there. The men were the rabbis. Yes, of course, the men were the rabbis. The men made Jewish law. True. But, and that's where people stop. And I'm saying, well, maybe the men did not teach the women all the rules of how not to charge interest on a loan, because maybe the men were dealing with the financial arrangements and, and so on. But when it came to baking matzo, when it came to baking bread, and you had to take a portion of the bread when you were baking the bread and give it to the Kohen, and you had to tithe the produce that's coming in from the field and give it to the Levite and so on, these rules had to be communicated by the men to the women. So I'm arguing that men and women were knowledgeably or halachically knowledgeable. Now, some people will say to me, I've tried this out before on various places, and people say to me, stop it. She learned from her mother whatever she had to do in the kitchen. I say, okay, there's a lot a woman can learn from her mother. Without even her mother talking to her, you just watch how the mother, let's say, is baking matzah. But what I'm saying is, and you know this is true to this very day, those men are churning out. Those men never stop churning out new rules. In, in today, in the age in which we live, it's called the chumrah of the week, the stringency that comes out every week. There's always a new rule about what you can to do, generally speaking, what you can't do, rather than what you can do. So you can learn tons of Jewish practices from your mother, but assuming you're married and living with a husband, your husband is going to need, if he's a rabbi, if he's knowledgeable, he's going to need to keep updating you on what those men are coming up with in their discussions in the Beit Midrash. So that's one thing I want to tell you. And the last thing I want to tell you before we go to the text is as follows. Many people imagine that when the rabbis uh, 1,500 years ago had their halachic discussions and produced all these laws that I'm talking about, that it was, it was like this that they sat around in a room that had walls, probably some lighting, and that they could see each other, and they, uh, you know, smaller numbers, larger numbers, whatever, they came up with their rules. I teach for many years, I taught for many years at the Jewish Theological Seminary. That is a building, what we call a bricks and mortar building. 
My students were in a classroom, you know, like this. And we sat around and we discussed. If this were the case in the ancient world, then women more or less would have been closed off from knowledge of Jewish law because Jewish law was being discussed and developed in closed rooms and women were not at the table. Okay, well, I'm going to say something else in a moment. No, it's true. Women were not at the table, meaning women, if the women um, came in to put out the kiddush, put out the refreshments, they came in and they walked out. They were not sitting at the tables equals the way women and men are sitting here tonight. So what a um, researcher named Catherine Hezer, who was, I know very well, what she discovered and wrote about mm, around 15, 20 years ago is that we're getting it wrong about the ancient, what we call study halls, the ancient Beit Midrash. Oh, this is called Valley Beit Midrash. So you know the words uh, Beit Midrash, study hall, okay? She argued very convincingly that in the ancient world, they didn't have closed rooms like this or like JTS or like any of the synagogues that you may be going to. Rather, there was a rabbi. A rabbi had students, and he gathered his students in his own home. In the hot weather, they sat outside in the courtyard. In the cold weather, they sat inside. I can't tell you if they had a living room or if they didn't have a living room, but they had you know, indoor space. Or the rabbi and the students walked on the road from one place to another and discussed Torah. We even have stories, anecdotes in the Talmud where rabbi goes to the bathhouse and his students go to the bathhouse with him and learn proper behavior in the bathhouse. My point is this, if the Beit Midrash of the ancient world was what we call a portable Beit Midrash, a moving Beit Midrash, which often took place in the home and in the courtyard and in the dining room, then women had access. Now, please, I'm not saying that women sat at the table. I'm simply saying that it's, people didn't have homes as big as this room. But if your husband or your father or your son were sitting with a couple of colleagues in the room and you were just over there knitting, sewing, cooking, you know, in the kitchen, which is not that far away, then you are privy to the halachic conversations. So this notion of men sequestering themselves in a room and coming up with Jewish law and the women um, you know, are far away and don't hear anything, that's wrong, that's wrong. She argued, and as I say, I'm totally convinced by her arguments, that women were walking in and out. Women were overhearing. Women were learning halakha, not officially at the table as students, but it's in the air. And now, having said all of that, it's all in the air, what I just said. And now we're going to look at the texts so that I can show you on what I am basing the arguments, the statements that I just made. Okay, so this is, um, we're running this as an advanced Talmud class, all right? I, what I have for you here are the Hebrew texts. It's a mixture of Hebrew and Aramaic, which is another Semitic language like Hebrew. And I translated it. So what I'm going to do, there are five. Each one of them features a woman, or more than one woman. And I'm going to read them in the original and comment on them. And you can follow. If you can read Hebrew, you can follow in the original. Or you can just read the English. But 
or, or you can, <laughs> you don't have to look at the paper, piece of paper at all. The, basically, this is for you to use here, but it's also for you to take home so you'll uh, have evidence of what we discussed here tonight. Okay, number one is about Shabbat lamps. Um, I'll just preface it by saying the Talmud has two strands. There's the oldest strand called the Mishnah, which is all in Hebrew, and then discussion of the Mishnah by the rabbis who lived a little bit later is called the Gemara. So I don't have it in front of you, but the Mishnah states <clears throat> that on Friday night, lo or haner, you should not read by the light of the Shabbat lamps. Now, I, I may use the word candle, but of course, in, back in those days, they had oil lamps. It was like a little ceramic um, uh, dish with a handle and a wick, and you poured the oil in it, and you struck a match, and, uh, and the wick drew up the oil, and it, and it kept burning. Um, what is the reason that the Mishnah says that you should not read a book Friday night? You know, Shabbat, daytime, it's light. You don't need to read by the light of the oil lamp. But why is it you should not read Friday night by the light of the oil lamp? Because, for instance, if this is my oil lamp, and this is the book that I'm trying to read by the light of the oil lamp, and if I'm reading and the lamp is flickering and I can't quite make out what I'm reading, I may pick up my oil lamp and go like this to get the oil to go up in the wick and for the uh, flame to stop flickering in order because I'm engrossed, I can't wait to read what's coming next, I may start fidgeting uh, with the lamp. Doing that, going like this with an oil lamp on Shabbat is wrong, is a violation of Shabbat, because by um, adjusting the flame, you are violating the rule of no lo lahavi iresh bioma Shabbat, which means in English, do not kindle flames on the Sabbath. And by going like this, you are kindling the flame, you are enhancing the flame. You are getting the flame to burn brighter. That's the background. Okay, now I'm going to read the text here. Tani Rabbi Chia, Rabbi Chia is the name of rabbi. He taught the following. He's an earlier rabbi. Okay, you may not read by the light of the lamp lest you go like this to the oil lamp, but, and this is why I asked for a cup of water, but if your host pours you, um, or is about to pour you, a cup of wine, is usually wine, the way we drink Coke, they drank wine, that was actually good. Wine um, kind of has, I think, bacteria in it, the alcohol. Um, anyway, um, it seems that if you were a guest in someone's home and they put a cup in front of you, either an empty cup or a cup with liquid in it, you would be tempted to hold it up to the flame to make sure it was clean. Okay, that sounds a little bit obnoxious, but things were different back then. And it says here, you may, you may look at what's inside the cup by the light of the flame. The words by the light of the flame are understood. And don't worry that you're going to go like this with the flame and violate Shabbat. In other words, reading, we worry about, because you get engrossed in your reading. I read Friday night, and, <laughs> you know, page turners often, and it would drive me crazy if the lamp all of a sudden went out and I, and I couldn't keep reading. So no reading by the light of the lamp, but just to hold up your cup to see if it's clean by the light of the lamp, Rabbi Chia says, that's okay, 
chances are that's not going to lead you to go like this. Okay? Now comes, that's the rule. And now comes the anecdote. Rav Yirmiya Salak Lagabe Rav Asi. So one rabbi visited another. Rabbi Jeremiah went into the home of Rabbi Asi. And when the Talmud, um, the Talmud assumes you fill in the contextual details. Yes, we're talking about a Friday night because the halacha, the prescript of law, was about Friday night. So Rabbi Yirmiya visited Rav Asi on a Friday night. Mazag like kasa. Rav Asi is the host, and he pours, it's actually he mixes, because you dilute the strong wine with water. Um, he pours a, he mixes a cup, meaning a cup of wine, for his guest, share mistakelbe. And what does the guest do? He picks up the glass and starts holding it in front of the flame to examine what's in that cup. I want to make sure there are no bugs in my wine, something like that. This is happening in front of Rav Asi and in front of his wife, Rav Asi's wife, the host and the hostess. Amrale, so she said to him, him here being her husband, she says to Amrale B'nai Beitei, I have to comment on what B'nai Beitei is, but just trust me for the moment. The wife said to the husband, Chami mahu avid, and I'm going to add a little expression here, oh my God, what is that guest doing? In other words, the wife of Rabbi Chia sees the guest going like this to the light of the flame, and she doesn't turn to the guest. She's criticizing the guest's behavior, but she criticizes him to her husband. So first of all, notice she's there. Now, I don't know if she's sitting at the table or if she's standing, serving them, or if she's just walking in and out. I don't know. I, I, there's no way I could know. But she sees what the guest is doing, and she is upset with what the guest is doing, and she's criticizing the guest's behavior to her husband. Now, what is going on here? Well, I have to fill it in for you, even though the rest of the story will make it clear. Rabbi Chia, as we just read, permits looking like this at the cup by the light of the flame Friday night, and he doesn't worry that you might go like this. That's Rabbi Chia. But Rabbi Asi disagrees with Rabbi Chia, and it's very clear that Rabbi Asi's wife knows that he disagrees with Rabbi Chia and that in their home, this, by the light of the lamp, is not allowed. And what happens? In comes a guest, a rabbi, no less. A rabbi sits down at the Shabbat table in the home of Asi and starts doing this by the light of the flame. And she knows her husband taught her that's not allowed because he is worried that you might start tipping the oil lamp if you do that. So she says to her husband, look what he's doing. And what does her husband say? Amarla, so what does the husband say to the wife? Okay, I'm going to um, just add a few words here. Dear, don't worry. He is our guest, and guests may behave in our house according to their own halachic rules, and our guest, Rabbi Yirmiya, learned the rule of Rabbi Chia that this is permitted. In other words, dear, we don't do this. I, um, Rabbi Asi, I think it's wrong to do this. But when there's a guest in our home 
who is a student of Rabbi Chia or a couple of generations removed, but is in the school of Rabbi Chia and thinks that that's allowed, and he's doing it in our home, even though we don't do it, it's okay. Don't worry about it. That, that's the entire anecdote. Now, you might say to yourself, what, what's, what have I learned from here? What's exciting about this anecdote? Why am I excited about it? Okay, I'm excited about it for the following reasons. I've kind of made them clear as I went along. Number one, we can deduce from the exchange between husband and wife that prior to this Friday night uh, that unfolded in front of us, prior to this Friday night, Rabbi Asi taught his wife a Jewish law that was not yet settled, that there were two opinions about. Some said this is okay, and some said this is not okay. He taught her this is not okay. Could she have learned it from her mother? No, it's not yet settled law. It seems to be, as I say, one of those new stringencies, all right? Um, according to Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Asi, it's a stringency. According to Rabbi Chia, it's permitted. So he had to have taught it to her before this thing, before this exchange took place. And number two, she is knowledgeable and she speaks up. In other words, you might think, oh, women, they're shrinking violets. They just stand there and they silently bring the food in and out. Well, no, she's actually um, starting a halacha conversation in the presence of the guest. The guests, you, you know, you, you could say this is terribly rude. I wouldn't disagree with you if I'd say it's terribly rude. But in front of the guest, she is saying to her husband, he is behaving in ways that are not acceptable halachically. All right? So here we have in the Talmud um, a report of a woman who knew Jewish law and who spoke up in criticism of a rabbi who was behaving, in her opinion, contrary to Jewish law, contrary to what her husband taught her was Jewish law, although not yet settled. So uh, if you're wondering, yes, that's why I like this story, because we have a knowledgeable woman here participating in what I'm going to say is a halachic mini-discussion with her husband. Um, he, he shouldn't be doing that because, you know, um, we don't allow that in this house because that's what you taught me. And then he teaches her something new, which is we don't treat guests like that. We let guests do what they have to do. You know, I don't want anybody here to conclude that, okay, my home is kosher, and if somebody came to my house on a Friday night and took out a ham sandwich, I would not allow that to happen in my own home. So th there are limits to this tolerance, okay? Nothing is going to happen in the home of uh, Rab Asi if Rabbi um, Yermia um, examines the uh, cup by the light of the Shabbat candle. <laughs> but no... Uh, or I'll take a different example. What if somebody walked into my home on a Friday night and struck a match and lit a cigarette? Forget, put aside that I wouldn't allow anybody to smoke at any time in my home. But if they, if they lit a match in my house, no, that's not acceptable to me. We don't strike matches in my house on Shabbat. Exactly what I would say, I'm not sure, but do not think that the moral of this story is, oh, if you're a guest, anything goes. This was a minor violation well, maybe you don't want to let me call it that, but this was uh, a rule that was not yet settled, okay? That, that you may not strike a match in my house or bring mayhem sandwich, that is settled Jewish law, okay? I just don't want anybody to walk away thinking that that's what I was saying here tonight. That is the first story. And what I think I forgot to say at the beginning of this, which I will say right now is, if 
in the course of, there's going to be 20 minutes at the end for Q&A, but if there's something not clear, stop me at any time, because clarification or clarity is, of course, important. So I'm moving on to number two. Oh, yes. So did it become settled law? I, I can't hear you. Did it become settled law about this business of... Oh, did it become Jewish law? Oh, I did not check out which of the two views. One of them became Jewish law. And I'll make you bet it's the one, uh, Rabbi Asi, that you can't do this. Because the fear of people uh, adjusting the oil lamp on Shabbat is it runs throughout the tractate of Shabbat. But honestly, I didn't check it. I should have checked it. So I can only guess. OK, was there another? Clarification? Yes. We're going to discuss what was in the parentheses. Oh. Um, in the, I put in words in the parentheses just to help you. Which words? I'm, I'm sorry, which in the parentheses? Which? He, Rabiasi, the fifth. Oh, oh, yes. Thank you. Oh, that's very important. Thank you for reminding me. Yes, okay. B'nai Beitei is the Aramaic term for wife. You know, if I stopped right there, it would all be okay, but I can't stop right there because B'nai Beitei is Aramaic, but it's very similar to Hebrew. It means B'nai Beito. B'nai Beito literally means the members of his household. So the word for wife in Aramaic is I, I will have to use a word like, I don't like to do this, but I will use it, uh, somewhat degrading. She's, basically, it's calling her a housewife. In other words, Amrale um, B'nai that that we don't get her name, that's standard. That, that doesn't bother me. Um, you know, the, the men who are rabbis, they get their name in the Talmud. Even their students don't get their names in the Talmud, and the women don't get their names, aside from a few, like Bruria, Rachel, and so on. But um, B'nai Beitei is a standard term. There's another term, Debitu, of his house. That's also a standard Aramaic term. So a wife is just referred to in Aramaic as of his house or members of his household. Uh, this is, um, that's the way it is. Um, you know, in Hebrew, it would say Ishto. Ishto means his woman. And do you know that in Hebrew today, in Israel today, uh, a man will refer to his wife as Ishti, my wife. She, up until recently, if she was saying my husband, do you know the Hebrew up until recently for my husband? Ba'ali. Ba'ali. And Ba'al means my owner. So feminist women in Israel today no longer use the expression if they want to talk about my husband. They don't say Ba'ali. You know what they say? The way he calls her Ishti, my wife, she calls him Ishi. My man, okay, ishti really means my woman, but isha in Hebrew either means woman or means wife. So she says, when talking about him, she says, ishi, my husband, you know, halach lachanut, or whatever it is. My man or my husband went to the store. Ba'ali is falling out of common usage as, as meaning my husband. Because it is true, ba'al means the owner of. That's the way it is. Baal Baal in Yiddish means the owner of the um, uh, cart, the wagon. Okay, I'm going to go on to number two. This is uh, a fascinating text. All right, it's about betrothal. Let me just say a word or two about betrothal, and that is Jewish marriage happens 
um, there are two stages of Jewish marriage. The first stage is called betrothal. I'll say mo uh, something else about that in a moment. The second stage is called nisuin, or the marriage itself, or the celebration of the marriage itself. Betrothal involves him putting a ring, or a ring on her finger, worth a penny or more, or giving her a gift, worth a penny or more, and saying the words to her, behold, you are betrothed to me. The important thing to know about betrothal is, once a man betroths a woman with a gift and with that, those words, they are husband and wife. And should they not go through with a wedding celebration, they don't yet live with each other in the ancient Jewish law. Today it's different a little bit. Let's not talk about today. But in the ancient Jewish world, betrothal took place, and a month later, or even a year later, there was a big wedding celebration, and then the couple moved in with each other. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybetemidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. But it's important to know that betrothal affects the marital bond, which can then only be dissolved with a bill of divorce, even if they never lived together. All right. I'm now reading. There was a man who betrothed, the Akdish, who betrothed a woman with a stibnite stone. Kuchla is K-O-H-L. And um, I'm using the word stibnite because that's the fancy English translation. But this is coal. Coal is uh, mascara. Okay, But this is a stone from which I guess you grind out mascara. So he gave her, for the betrothal, betrothal gift, a stibnite stone. Yativ Rav And Rav Chizda, I, I'm going to fill in the details shortly. Rav, Rav Chizda, Rabbi Chizda, was sitting there and was trying to determine the value of the Stibnite stone, not its exact value, only was it worth a penny or more, or was it worth less? If it had in it, if it was worth a penny or more, yes. The betrothal that um, was affected with the Stibnite stone is valid. And if the Stibnite stone is worth less than a penny, then the betrothal is not valid. Now you say to me, uh, you know, what's going on here? So let me fill in the details because it is typical of Talmudic anecdotes to um, make you fill in the details from the context. But I know the context. I didn't give you the whole page of Talmud here. So what's happening here is a man um, did betroth a woman with a stibnite stone, and then, I have it here for you in the English, she, another man came along. Okay, remember, they didn't move in with each other. This is simply uh, preliminaries. Um, you affect the betrothal. You know that the guy <laughs> is now going to show up at the wedding, so the bride's parents will spend money on renting a hall, buying a trousseau, and by hiring a caterer. They'll do all those things because the groom is in their pocket. If the groom were not in their pocket, they could spend all that money and the groom might not show. In the ancient world, today too. All right, so um, she accepted a stibnite stone from one man, and then along comes another suitor, and he gives her um, a penny or more, and the question is, to which man is she betrothed? By the way, once you're betrothed, if a second man comes along and gives you a million dollars, it won't work. If you're betrothed to A, 
B cannot then betroth you. You are married to A until he divorces you, and nobody else can come along and betroth you. So what seemingly happens here, what, what uh, I mean I can determine has happened here, is that the second man is claiming that he's her husband, and then the first man is saying, but I gave her a Stibnite stone. And the issue uh, is revolving around, devolves upon how much was that Stibnite stone worth? If it was worth a penny or more, she is married to the first guy who came along. And they can proceed to have the celebration and so on. If the Stibnite stone turns out to be worth less than a penny, then the second man who came along and for sure gave her a penny, then he's her husband and they can proceed to have the celebration. It may sound strange, but in a world in which um, as soon as you got betrothed, you didn't ride off into the sunset, but you waited a number of months, these kinds of things could happen. Uh, what does she know? <laughs> okay, First she says, yeah, I'll marry him. And then the next guy comes along and he's more attractive to her. And she figures, I haven't yet gone through the wedding. I haven't moved in with the first guy. I'll, I'll accept the second guy. It, it could happen. So second guy is upset and the case comes before Rabbi Chizda. And what is he doing? He says, show me the stone. And he's looking at the stone and he's trying to determine its value. Okay, here's where it gets interesting. I'm skipping the Hebrew line in the middle because it's, it, um, it's a, irrelevant to the continuation of the story. It's a later edition. Okay, in the third Hebrew line, in bold, Amrale Ime, his mother said to him, okay, whose mother? Rabbi Chizda's mother is present at the time that he's examining this Stibnite stone, and we've got two men, each of whom thinks he's married to that woman. So what? What is the mother doing there? Before I tell you what she said, let me just explain a little bit what the mother is doing there. So number one, this is not in a room like this, okay? Rav Chizda, Rabbi Chizda is most likely in his own home holding court and people coming to him. This is what rabbis do to this day. People will show up at a rabbi's home. So they're coming to him with a question, meaning if it's his own home, his mother is there. Okay, can we assume she's an old lady? We can assume that even if she's 50 in those days, 50 was old. And she's an old lady who is listening in to the halakha discussion and is about to express an opinion on what's transpiring there. All right, so this again, when you say, hmm, how did that woman, Catherine Hesher, determine that the Beit Midrash was not bricks and mortar and all that? Well, a text like this tells you a lot. If a woman is there and women were not rabbis and women did not study on a regular basis, oh, but here she is. And this woman is knowledgeable because here's what she says. She says to her son, why are you trying to determine the value of the Stibnite stone today? That's, that doesn't uh, affect anything. That's not relevant. Isn't it true that on the day that he betrothed her, six months ago, I don't know, two years ago, whatever it is, isn't it true that on the day that he betrothed her, it was worth a penny? You know, the market for gold goes up and down day by day. The market for silver goes up and down. I don't, I don't know anything about the market of Stibnite stones. But 
But his mother says to him, you're doing the wrong thing. Son, don't look at the Stibnite Stone value of today. You've got to go back, you know, take out the New York Times from, uh, you know, November of 2018 and see what Stibnite was being sold for back then, Stibnite Stone of this size and so on. Okay, Amarla, this is, this is a complicated anecdote, and he says to his mother, who just intervened, okay, let me just stay right now. Here we have a mother intervening in a halachic case or halachic discussion, all right? She's expressing a halachic opinion. She understands that the value of the gift on the day it was given is the determining factor and not its value today. This is a very important uh, economic principle, and it's true to this very day. It, it's when you gave it to her, was it worth a penny? Not is today worth a penny. You know, inflation, deflation, and so on. So what does he say to his mother, who, so to speak, has criticized him in front of at least the two men, or at least the one man, I don't know. Um, he says to her, love kol kaminach de asartla abatra. I'm not going to pay attention to you, meaning it doesn't go according to you, mom, because according to you, you have just forbidden her to be married to the last one, the second man. Abatra is the last one. We've got two suitors here, or let's put it this way, two men thinking they're the husband, all right? And if his mother is right, is man A the husband or man B the husband? The mother is saying, on the day that he gave her the Stibnite stone, it surely was worth a penny. We don't know what it's worth today. But on the day that he gave it to her, he made sure that he was giving her a gift worth a penny. So that's what you should be considering. If the um, mother is right, who is her lawful husband? Man A or man B? Man A. And if, um, well, if the mother is wrong, <laughs> then it's man B. So he says to his mother... Mother, we're not going to uh, let you um, have a say here. We're not going to follow what you just said. Because love Here we're going to have an anecdote within an anecdote. He says to his mother, this is very similar to what happened a number of generations ago to Yehudit, happens to be my name, Yehudit, Judith, Debitu, and here you have the word for wife in Aramaic, Judith, the wife of Rabbi Chia, okay, uh, what happened to Judith, the wife of Rabbi Chia? Here it comes. She was having labor pains. She was giving birth, and she was in, you know, in serious, uh, agonizing pain. Um, I can just tell you the detail now that it's reported elsewhere in the Talmud that when she was giving birth, it was a twin uh, birth. And... Uh, I happen to love this story because I myself am the mother of twins, and, yeah, and, I, I, and I, I have a singleton as well. There is a difference. <laughs> when those two babies are trying to get out, there's, there's a lot more pain than when one baby's trying to get out. So, um, so here, but let, let me, the storyline, I interrupted the storyline. It's like Judith, the wife of Rabbi Chia, who was suffering labor pains, serious labor pains, Amrale, and she said, to her husband, there are a lot of names here. So let's keep everybody straight. Judith is married to Rabbi Chia. She's giving birth, and she says to her husband, as she is suffering these uh, painful contractions, she says to her husband, Amrali Aim, my mother, Judith is saying about her own mother, my mother told me, 
I don't know when, but sometime in the past, my mother told me, Judith's mother told her at some point in the past that Judith's father, when Judith was a little girl, had accepted a betrothal gift from some man for his daughter. This is a rule of Jewish law. A father can marry off a daughter when she is little. Do I like it? No, of course I don't like it. But I have, that's why I say it's patriarchally configured and so on. So, so what just happened here? Um, what happened here is this. The story within the story is as follows. Um, flashback. Judith is giving birth. She's suffering a lot of pain. And she's trying to understand why she's having this debilitating pain when she is getting birth. And then she says to her husband, who I imagine is standing by, I'm not going to swear to that, but that's what it sounds like, uh, standing by as she's giving birth, close, far, I don't know. She says to him, you know, these pains that I'm having, which are extraordinary, I think I know why I'm having them. I'm being punished because you, uh, Rabbi Chia, are my husband, but you are actually man B, because when I was little, according to my mother, man A came along and dad married me off to man A when I was little. Where, where man A went, why that marriage was not consummated, I have no idea, but that's beside the point. So she says to her husband, yes, this is my punishment, uh, these pains, because you, <laughs> she's basically saying to him, you and I are living in an adulterous relationship because I'm really married, or if we accept my mother, what my mother told me, that when I was little, Pop accepted betrothal monies for me to some other man. Well, true, I don't know if it's true, I don't know if it's not true, but hey, I'm really suffering here. And what did her husband say to her? Okay, can you imagine, she is giving birth to his two sons. Turns out, I know from the other story, she's giving birth to two sons, and as she's trying to, push these two boys out of her womb, she's saying to her husband, these, these children that are being born right now, they're actually bastards, according to Jewish law, mamzerim, because you, dear man, we are living together, you're not my real husband. We think we're married to each other, but I was really married off by my father when I was little to so-and-so. And then you came along and I married you, and here's, here's the punishment I'm suffering labor pains. Of course, it doesn't seem fair that she should suffer the labor pains for you know, what her father did, what Rabbi Chia did, and so on. But then, what does her husband say to her? What would you say to your wife as she's giving birth to your two um, cherished children, and, and she's saying to you, you know, we're not married, and these kids are moms, Erim? And he says to her, love called Kamina Deimech. We're not going to listen to your mother. We're not going to listen to your mother because if we do, she's prohibiting you to me. So we're not going to listen to her. Okay, that's the end of the story. So can I, let me put it all together. There are, the, the first part of the story happens generations later. Rabbi Chizda is trying to figure out whether the Stibonite stone man gave enough money, uh, pruta's worth, a penny's worth, betrothal gift to the, to the wife, and he's trying to figure out if the Stibnite stones value what it is today. And his mother criticizes him and says, uh-uh, you should be figuring out what it was worth 
back then when he gave it to her. And then he says, no, mom, stay out of this, because if we do that, she's going to want married to man A, and for whatever reason, he's favoring man B and trying to invalidate the betrothal of man A. And he says to his mother, this is just what happened to Judith and Rabbi Chia and so on and so on, where Judith's husband, Rabbi Chia, said, oh, no, no, we're not going to listen to your mother. <laughs> because if we listen to your mother, <laughs> the children are not um, valid, you know, their uh, impaired lineage, and, and I'm not your husband and so on. So we're not going to listen to your mother. Okay, um, you know, I, I don't want to express a halachic opinion about the story. That's not my goal here tonight. My goal here tonight is to point out that we've got women in this anecdote talking about Jewish law with men. We've got Rabbi Chizda's mother understanding that the, valid, the value of a betrothal gift is to be determined on the day it was given and not uh, what it's worth later on to determine the validity of the marriage. And then we've got Judith's mother um, telling her that... Um, you know, you're not really married to your husband because your father uh, <laughs> took Kiddushin from somebody else. So there, there's a whole, there are three women here. We've got Judith. How many women? Judith, her mother, and Rabbi Chizda's mother. We've got three women in this story, and for sure Rabbi Chizda's mother is knowledgeable about Jewish law. Anyway, I see that time is running, and I've got three more texts. So let me continue. They're shorter. Uh, let's, I want to finish all of them. Um, number three, again, my goal here tonight is to show you that if you look hard enough, you will find women's voices in the Talmud speaking up about issues of Jewish law. Okay, number three, um, Avalon on Shabbat, this is a quote from the Mishnah, on Shabbat you're not allowed to scrape. What it means to scrape is scrape mud off your shoes. Now, I... I've spent time in Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem back in the 60s when I was a student at Hebrew University, um, when it rained in Jerusalem, as it did heavily in the winter, there was mud all over the place. So I really do understand that in the rainy season in the land of Israel, where the mission is written, you've got an issue of, can you scrape the mud off your shoes on Shabbat? What would be the argument against scraping the mud off your shoes on Shabbat? That I can't tell you exactly because I don't know, but in some way that would violate Shabbat. The easy answer is you're supposed to do things differently on Shabbat and scraping mud off your shoe is something you do during the week. So that's how it all begins. No scraping shoes on Shabbat. Tan Rabbanan, this is from the Talmud. This is a earlier text embedded in the Talmud. One may not scrape with a scraper on the Sabbath. By the way, in the ancient world, I'm using the word scraper, but the correct term is actually strigil, S-T-R-I-G-I-L. And if you go on Google and put in strigil, Roman strigil, you will find many, many diagrams, uh, images of strigils in the ancient world. This is not a Jewish thing. This is what people use to get mud off the shoes. So it says here, no scraping with strigils or scrapers on Shabbat, but we have a dissenting opinion. Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel Omer, Im hayu raglav meluch lachot v'tit u'v'tso'ah, gorer kedarko v'enoch He says, this one dissenting opinion says, 
if his feet are filthy with clay or excrement, they didn't have sewers back in those days, then you scrape as usual and don't worry that you're violating the Sabbath. Rabbi Shemar Gamliel saying, hey, this is not um, baking on the Sabbath, which is not allowed. This is not, um, uh, what do you call it, tanning hide on the Sabbath, which is not allowed. No, Rabbi Shemar Gamliel says, if your feet are filthy and you're coming into the house on the Sabbath, you scrape and don't worry. Don't think you're violating the Sabbath. No, there's no issue here. And this time I did look it up, and the halacha is decided according to... No, I'm not going to tell you yet. Here's the anecdote, very short, then I'll tell you. Rav Shmuel bar Yehuda, this is a couple of generations later. It's the name of a rabbi in Babylonia. Avda le imei margarta de kaspa. His mother, imei is his mother. His mother made for him a scraper out of silver. Now, what is this all about? Okay, we had two opinions on the topic of scraping on the Sabbath. You may, you may not. So his mother is interested in um, pushing forward the view that you may scrape whatever is off, filth off your shoes on the Sabbath. You know, is that part of a woman's sensibility? I don't want to go that way, but okay, it's his mother. And that's, so she makes him a Sabbath scraper just to be used on the Sabbath. So this is kind of straddling the two opinions. No, you may not scrape on the Sabbath with a regular scraper. Yes, you may scrape on the Sabbath if you have a Sabbath scraper. And that became the halacha. I looked this up because I was curious myself. I guess you could say I was more curious here than a number one. And in fact, the law is, according to Ramashim and Gamliel, you may scrape on the Sabbath and highly recommended <laughs> with a Sabbath scraper. But it's a beautiful detail. This is a tiny, tiny anecdote. Okay, and now I'll be mean and say, when men study this little detail, his mother made him a silver strigil, they probably just read the words and keep going and don't even think about it. And I'm telling you, this is a beautiful anecdote. Very short, was it? Five words. His mother, <laughs> um, clearly out of love for him, they do I think there's a special bond between sons and mothers in the Talmud? Yes, I do. We saw it back with, uh, in the previous one with Rabbi Chizda's mother who's living with him. Yes, when women were widowed and grew old, their sons took them in. <laughs> and that's why some people cynically say, this is why mothers back then always had to favor sons over daughters. Because who took you in when you got old? Not your daughter, because her husband didn't like it. Because, you know, it costs money, et cetera, et cetera. Who took you in? Your son took you in. So of course you're going to always do things for your son. I'm not cynical. I think his mother made him a silver strigil for Sabbath use because she loved him and she wanted him to have clean shoes on the Sabbath and not mess up the house and not mess up his clothing. Okay, that, that's, um, as I say, so when I read those little five words, I get all excited about it and I say, we've got a woman, does she know Jewish law? Yes, of course she knows Jewish law. She knows there's a dispute, and she says, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to give him a scraper just for use on the Sabbath. Who could object to that? And in fact, nobody. <laughs> it became standard, it became um, official Jewish law. That's number three. We got another mother in number four, also very short. 
Mar Bray de Ravina, man katale imei ba'arbe. So again, if you know Hebrew, imei is Aramaic, but it's ima shalo, his mother. Here we have uh, a rabbi named Ravina. He happens to be one of the very late rabbis in the Talmud. Uh, Amar, the son of Ravina. Ravina is late, and his son is even later. What did his mother do for him? Okay, you've heard of matzah shmura, maybe? Okay, matzah shmura. I go to the supermarket, and I buy Streit's matzah. Streit's used to have a matzah factory in lower Manhattan. Now they moved to New Jersey. The water is different. The matzah is different. Be that as it may, we buy Streit's matzah. What do we buy for the seders? Usually, not always, we buy a box of shmura matzah, S-H-M-U-R-A-H. It means guarded. What it means is there are some who think that from the time the wheat is harvested, before it's turned into flour, from the time the wheat is harvested, meaning cut from the stalk, you have to make sure no water comes into contact with the wheat kernels because if water comes into contact, according to... Um, people who are excessively stringent, if water comes into contact with the wheat kernels, it becomes chametz, leavened, and cannot be used to bake matzah. So to this very day, you can find, um, not usually in the supermarket, but in Jewish stores, online, you can buy matzah shmura. It's usually handmade, and it is, um, the grain is guarded so that no water comes in contact with it, from the moment it's harvested until the moment it's baked onto matzah. So what did his mother do for him? She has some kind of trough, some big container, and she takes the wheat that's harvested, puts it in the trough for him, and keeps it dry from harvest time. Now, I don't know exactly when harvest time is in Israel. We could talk about winter wheat. What? A couple of months. I don't know exactly. She, uh, again shall I say, out of love, out of concern for herself, which I don't like to say, but I'm, I'm going to repeat it, out of love for her son so that he should have the best, <laughs> so that he should have shmura matzah. She keeps, I don't know how much, a bushel, two bushel, three bushels of wheat. She guards it, <laughs> you know, with her soul, so to speak, from the moment it's harvested. She watches over that wheat for her son so when Pesach comes around, he can bake matzah with it, and that would be called shmur matzah. The line from the Torah is, ushmartem eta matzot, you shall guard the matzahs or observe the matzahs. And from that, develop the practice of matzah shmura. So today, um, people have the practice of beautiful handmade matzah, usually for the seders, and the rest of the week, regular machine-made matzah, not guarded from the moment it was harvested. Okay, so there's another woman who understood Jewish law or acted upon Jewish law um, for her son. And now we get to the very last one. And, um, you know, I, don't, I think I'm supposed to end soon, so we'll end soon, and then there's time for questions. Okay, here's the last one. I have to give you a little background here, too. There's a famous tractate in the Talmud, in the Mishnah, in the Gemara, called Beitzah. Beitzah means egg. Okay, nothing other, simple, egg, E-G-G. What is the issue there? If an egg, now you're not allowed to laugh because many people make fun of this Mishnah and I don't because I think there's a serious halachic issue here. The question is this, if a chicken lays an egg on the holiday, uh, we're not talking about Shabbat, if a chicken lays an egg on the holiday, 
may you eat it on the holiday. So, you know, Pesach, the first day of Pesach this year is a Saturday. Okay, well, okay, that's not the easiest thing to talk about because Saturday has extra rules. But okay, if an egg is laid on Saturday or even Sunday, of, second day of Passover for us here, um, could you eat that egg? And you say, why not? Why can't I eat the egg? Because there's a rule that all foodstuffs, you can cook, you can cook on holidays, no question about that. All foodstuffs that you're going to use on holidays to prepare food, those foodstuffs must be in existence and ready to be used at the onset of the holiday. In other words, you don't go to the supermarket, even if you don't pay for it, you can't go to the supermarket on Pesach and bring home uh, you know, prunes or whatever it is, potatoes that you want to cook. No, stuff is whatever foodstuffs you're going to cook with on the holiday, they should be in your possession and available at the onset of the holiday. So if an egg is laid on the holiday, was it ready to be used at the onset of the holiday because it was formed inside the chicken and just had to come out on the holiday or not? So I'm not here to decide that issue. The, the two houses, the house of Shammai, the house of Hillel, disgusted, and the halacha is stringent. Uh, if an egg is laid on the holiday, you have to wait until the next day or you know, that night at the end of the holiday to eat it. We're not going to waste it. Just <laughs> you, You're going to have to, you want to make your six-egg uh, chocolate mousse, you better have other eggs around to make your chocolate mousse, and you're not supposed to use the egg that was laid on the holiday. All right, that's the background. Now I read this little anecdote. It's not it's sort of an anecdote. It's some, something else, actually. Rav Shimi Bai, Mahu Lechpotalav Kli. Okay, Rabbi Shimi asked the following question of his colleagues. What about inverting a uh, utensil over it? In other words, if, if this is the egg that was laid on the holiday, and you're supposed to imagine in the ancient world you have... Um, a house and you have a courtyard and you have chickens running around either in the house, outside the house, and the egg gets laid and you have people running around, children running around, and dogs running around, and I don't know, cows running around, goats running around. If you leave the newly laid egg right there in the courtyard uh, on the holiday, <laughs> by the end of the holiday, that egg is smashed. Somebody's going to run into that egg and it's going to ooze out. So the question is, may you invert, you know, in theory, I can't do it because I've got water here, but could I invert a cup over or a bowl or anything over this newly laid egg to protect it for the duration of the holiday so that it can be used uh, at the end of the holiday? And you could say, why is this a question? You know, what's wrong with moving this cup and putting it over the egg? So I have here in the note, I wrote it down so I would say it right. Amoraim, that's rabbis in the Talmud, differ on whether a utensil may be moved on the Sabbath or on a holiday for the sake of an object that itself may not be moved. The egg itself, because it wasn't ready at the onset of the holiday, is called muktzeh. It's uh, off limits. You can't use it yet. So you, you can't pick it up and move it. Okay, it's going to lie there. Well, fine, I can let it lie there, but can I take something and put it over the egg to protect it? That's the question. So some, you know, there's a debate, yes, no, yes, no. So uh, Rabbi Shimei asked, is that allowed? And they want to know the answer to it, because there's debate. Let it be resolved according to what Rabbi Shimon 
of the house of Rabbi Yanai. Rabbi Shimon is the son of Rabbi Yanai. They happen to be early uh, rabbis living in the land of Israel. He says the following, I didn't hear the answer to this question from dad, his father, Rabbi Yanai. My sister told me the answer to this question in the name of our father. In other words, okay, let me keep going and then I'll comment. If an egg is laid on a holiday, you can uh, prop up uh, a bowl, a cup, anything. You can prop up something right next to the egg. So, won't, so the egg won't roll away. It could be sloping surface. You don't want the egg to roll away. But you may not invert a cup or a bowl or whatever over the egg for those reasons that I wrote in that note below because since the egg itself may not be moved, can you really take something that can be moved to protect something that can't be moved? Okay, I don't want to get into that. But, um, but I have this, I wrote the, the Hebrew in bold. So what's exciting about this? So far, this is the only source. I have not read the entire Babylonian Talmud. I have not read the entire Jerusalem Talmud. There are two Talmuds, one from the land of Israel, one from Babylonia. The famous one is the Babylonian Talmud. So I have not read every page of the Talmud. So far, this is the only place that I know of in the Talmud where a woman is in the, cited as a, um, it's called a trident, somebody who transmits a chain of tradition, okay? So let, let's just imagine what's happening here. We've got Rabbi Yanai, who holds the opinion that you can prop up something against the egg but not cover it with a bowl. And that's his opinion. But who does he teach it to? Well, in this case, he taught it to his daughter. Oh, this is very interesting. So now I have to try to understand under what circumstances she heard it from her father. It could be she overheard it when they were discussing it because, say, women are around when men are discussing these kinds of issues. Or women raised chickens in the ancient world. We have many texts, not just Jewish culture, Mediterranean culture, women and chickens. I, I like to point out, years ago, I saw a movie with Sophia Loren, and she's an Italian woman, and she's running after the chickens in the courtyard. So women and chickens, this is something women have done for ages. So the way I'm imagining it, I, I can't be sure, is that she's raising chickens, and on a holiday, whichever holiday, a chicken laid an egg. She knows she can't use the egg that day, but she wants to know, and she probably goes over to dad, and the rabbi, Rabbi Yanai, and says, dad, I've got this egg. The kids are going to smash it. Can I put something over the egg to protect it? And he says, no, dear, it's my opinion. You may not invert a bowl over it for those reasons that are written in the footnote, but here's what you can do. Put something up against it. It'll protect it, and hopefully, if you're lucky, it'll still be there when the holiday is over. So he has an opinion. Either he teaches it to her, she overhears it, she asks him a question. So the father teaches the halakha to the daughter. The son is not in the picture because how does the son, her brother, learn the halakha? She teaches it to him, okay? So we have a father communicating halakha to a daughter. She communicates it to her brother. And what does her brother do with it? He brings it to the Beit Midrash and he says, here, guys, um, here's the answer to the question that's troubling you. And he honestly says, I didn't hear it from my father. He totally says, Ani lo shamatami abba. No, 
I, no direct conversation on this topic between me and dad. My sister told it to me in my father's name. So the father teaches the daughter, and the daughter teaches the brother, and the brother brings it to the Beit Midrash. Okay? I rest my case. And in the last line here says, Shmuel Amar This is to show you that a different rabbi says, you may invert a utensil over it. Again, I'm trying to say, you can't learn this from your mother because it's not settled Jewish law. We've got Rabbi Yanai saying, you may not invert a utensil over it. And we've got Shmuel, another early Babylonian rabbi. Rabbi Yanai is land of Israel. Shmuel is Babylonia. And they're disagreeing on what you can do. But that's not what I'm here to discuss with you tonight, but to show you that women were involved with Jewish law. Okay? Um, as I say, my, my goal, and I'm <laughs> concluding, my goal is to try to open your eyes tonight to the fact that it, it's not the way you may have thought it was. I don't know what you thought. But if you thought that in the ancient world, women were sequestered, and all they could do was cook the food and serve the food and raise the kids, yes, they did have to serve the food and cook the food and raise the kids and do the laundry and sew the clothes and, and, and you know, buy the groceries, whatever else, bake the bread. Women had to do all those things. I'm not denying that. And men had to be blacksmiths or they had to be farmers or they had to be shoemakers. We know these things. But in addition to those roles that men and women played in the ancient world, now I'm focusing on the women, women also, in a limited way, not as much as men, but in a limited way, were part of halakha discussion. Number one, because the only way to eat the food that you think is kosher on holidays the rest of the year is to tell her the new laws that are coming out. That's what we said earlier. That, that's certainly true. But number two, women are around, and you're around. You rabbis are around, and you're not um, forbidding women to overhear. You're not telling women to plug their ears with cotton. No, women are around. And what do we have? Women occasionally speaking up, piping up, and saying, hey, you know, you shouldn't be doing it this way, dear son. You should be considering its value back then, and so on and so on, or... You know, my sister taught me this Jewish law. You're wondering about it. I have the answer for you. And who do I get it from? I, I got it from my sister. These, these sources are not what I would call uh, all over the place in the Talmud. They're not abundant. They're, they're there. I'm collecting them. I'm writing about them. And this is, I just, I'm hoping that you now understand um, something about the ancient Jewish world that you did not know before you got here tonight. Thank you. Okay. So um, now I'm open to questions. You can ask me about these particular texts, or if you want to ask a little broader about Talmud. We have around 15 minutes, I think. I don't, I don't have a timekeeper. I think that's about the way it works. OK. Um, yes? I'm just curious. Is this what you teach at the JTS, this kind of lesson plan? Or Generally not. <laughs> OK. <laughs> No, because, well, first of all, right now I happen to be retired, but what did I do for the 43 years or so that I was teaching there? This, this is um, relatively recent research of mine, and I did teach, I will have to admit, a very popular course called Ten Sugyot, that's Talmudic discussions, Ten Talmudic discussions about women that every rabbi should know, and that I did teach. So then I talked about women and blowing the chauffeur, women and reading the Megillah, women and leading grace after meals, and so on and so on. But no, I never, um, I never did this. 
you see, I, I published an article on this already, and the book that I'm writing is not just about women, but there'll be a chapter about women's voices in the Talmud, so um, it'll be out there. But uh, no, I, um, I can't even say to you um, that I talk about this all that often. Uh, I'm very happy. When uh, Rabbi Shmueli asked me to come here, he said, give me some topics. So I don't remember. I gave him five, six topics that I like to talk about. And he right away chose this topic. And I, okay, if that's what you think people are interested in, I love this topic. I'm happy to come and talk about it. But it's not as if, uh, you know, every week I'm teaching it to somewhere else. I'm not. I'm, I'm still working on it. Okay. Um, other questions? Uh, Yes. Have you published a book on that main class that you teach on the women? I published a book uh, called Rereading 1998, which was quite some time ago, Rereading the Rabbis, A Woman's Voice, 10 chapters. And each chapter, one is called marriage, one is called divorce, one is called rape, um, one is called women and ritual, witnesses, women as witnesses. And in it, I survey a lot of Talmudic material that book, you could say, is like this. It's texts and commentary on texts. And I will tell you right now, I have one very general conclusion that emerges from that book, which I'm, I love to talk about. And it is as follows. Uh, Jewish feminism came of age in the 1970s. Um, there was a small group of women, I was part of it, called Ezrat Nashim. It was like a consciousness-raising cell. Ezrat Nashim means help for women. Ironically, there's a mental hospital in Jerusalem called Ezrat Nashim, but we <laughs> dissociate ourselves from that. And we, in 1972, we issued a, crit a feminist critique of Judaism. And what happened after that was, it seems to me that we had either two or three camps. I'll, I'll make it three camps for right now. Um, there was the I'm being a little bit reductionist here, but there was a left-wing camp. I'm very simplifying and overgeneralizing, that said, oh, those rabbis, they hated women, they devalued women, they gave women no role, all women can do was cook and have children and so on. But that's wrong, to my mind. Then there were the right-wing people, generally speaking orthodox people, who said, oh, the rabbis, they were so good to women. And you, know, you, you can find texts in the Talmud that say things like, if your wife is short, bend down when you talk to her. Very nice. Or um, you should love your wife more than yourself. Yes, there are many, many. St By the way, you name it, um, uh, like a topic or a, a relationship, you can find a statement of the Talmud, pro or con. You know, we have rabbis all over the place. So, so the Orthodox world um, could handle no criticism of the rabbis. And then I believe I represent the third camp, which was, uh, the way I put it in my book was, the rabbis of the Talmud took women from being chattel, um, you know, objects owned by men, which was to a certain extent true according to biblical law. You know, it gets very complicated now. How did Jews really live? I don't know how Jews really lived, but I can tell you what the laws describe, what the laws um, stipulate. So I think the rabbis of the Talmud took Jews from being, uh, I'm sorry, the rabbis of the Talmud took women from being chattel to being second-class citizens. And you can say, big deal. Well, yes, that's a very big deal, all right? 
that is to say, on, on all these different topics, um, as I say, marriage, divorce, and so on, rape, there's very interesting discussion about rape. I can allude to it in a moment uh, because rape is very much on our minds these days, very unfortunately. But you can't expect rabbis 2,000 years ago to be egalitarian. Today, we're egalitarian. Today, we recognize that women are as fully human as men are, to quote Cynthia Ozick, all right? But back then, they didn't see that. But to me, it was incredible. And I tried very hard in uh, looking into these matters to be as objective as I could. So let me just put it this way. Depending on the questions you ask, you're going to find answers. I don't think the male Talmud scholars up until the 1960s, with exceptions, definitely with exceptions, were all that interested in women's legal status in the Talmud. But I got very interested in women's legal status. But my interest was, how did women's legal status change over time? You see, if you just slice it and you say, what was women's legal status in the year 325 common era? That's the period of the Talmud. Well, secondary to men, women still couldn't um, initiate marriage. Women still couldn't initiate a divorce and so on. But don't just look at that. That's very um, shallow. What you got to say is, what was happening over time? Were women's status going down? Was women's status plateauing? Was women's status moving up? And chapter after chapter after chapter, I demonstrated that these rabbis, the same rabbis we've been talking about tonight and many others, they, little by little, were improving women's status. Now, don't think I get away without criticism. I do, I do get criticism. I still think I'm right, <laughs> and that I have a huge amount of evidence in my book to, to make that point. Let me see if I can just make that one point about rape. What I think I showed is that rape in the Bible, if a man rapes a woman, according to the Bible, let's say she's an unwed virgin, he takes her to be his wife, and he pays her father the bride price. Now, we can justify that in many ways. Once she's been violated, nobody else is going to want her in this way. She has a husband, and so on and so on. But still, rape in the Bible is not a criminal act. Um, it's simply <laughs> a way of uh, grabbing a woman to marry. There's a theory that men raped women in order to override father's objections. You could rape her. If you, you asked for a hand in marriage. Father said no. So what do you do? You rape her, and then you get her. Okay, That sounds very cynical, and it is. <laughs> but um, that's one way of looking at rape in the Bible. But I showed that if you carefully analyze the rape laws in the Talmud, they turn rape into um, a case of battery, assault and battery. In other words, it's no, and it becomes a crime. And it's no longer that you take her in marriage. She can refuse. Her father can refuse. There's a huge transformation um, from what happened after rape in the Bible to what the rabbis in the Talmud prescribed. Again, can I swear to you these laws were upheld and Jews lived by them? No, I can't. But what I can say is in the post-Talmudic period, this is kind of what I said at the beginning, Jews began living. The Talmud achieved a, um, a dominant voice. After, you know, once the Talmud was closed, Jews began living their Judaism according to the Talmud or rejecting the Talmud. But basically, the Talmud became the, the book you turn to to find out this is how Judaism thinks you should behave.
and then either you follow or you don't follow, or you agree or you disagree, and so on. Um, I think that answers the question. I forgot what the question was. But. <laughs> okay, what else? Yes. Well, just so that I understand clearly, you keep talking about the biblical times and the times of the Talmud and the Mishnah, and you compare it to today and say it's different. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it's that different. The ultra-Orthodox, I'm guessing, I'm not ultra-Orthodox, but I'm guessing that the ultra-Orthodox believe the way they did 2,000 years ago. In a lot of that is true. I'm not here to um, either judge or advocate for ultra-Orthodox. I, I would just say I'm a um, conservative Jew. I taught for all those. I trained many, many, many conservative rabbis. And the way I see it is that there is halakha coming out of the Talmud, and, let, and halakha just means the, you know, the path you walk. So it seems to me that the path we walk in the conservative movement today, where we institute changes that uh, are ethically sound and that have um, a basis in our textual tradition, which I can definitely argue for you why women should become rabbis today, why it's allowed by the books, so I envision us as continuing the path, halakha. We just keep walking on the path, using the rules that they laid down. And I view uh, ultra-Orthodox, I won't say anything about Orthodox, but I definitely view ultra-Orthodox as deviating from the path, as developing a whole sense of stringency, of gender roles, and so on, that simply is not there on the pages of the Talmud. It's their right to do it. They can choose how they want to live. But we, I, as I, I'm, I have a feeling that I've studied more Talmud than anybody else sitting around this table. I could be wrong about that. I, if you want to trust me, um, we are we in the conservative movement. Um, I could talk about reform too. I have a lot of respect for reform movement, renewal movement, and so on. We are in the path of the Talmud more so than these others who have chosen their own path, and they're allowed to. Uh, they would say just the opposite. They will say they are in the path, and we are straying from the path. OK, so we can debate it. But I am right. <laughs>